situated here. Let's read our passage. And uh, this is a continuation from last week. I'll try to bring us up to speed. There's so much to say today, uh, and I hope it will be encouraging and challenging for us. Pick it up in verse number 20, please. Luke 17, verse 20. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and then shifts over to the disciples. Verse 20 of Luke 17 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look, there, or look, here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained, down, rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop, who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is God's word, and let us bow to ask him for his help in understanding. Father, thank you for those who've gathered today. This is an important lesson from your word. May all of us have open hearts to hear what it is that you have to say and be thinking of how to apply this truth. If there might be someone in here who has never received by faith Jesus Christ as their Savior, maybe they think they have, uh, but they never have. Uh, may the Holy Spirit's work of conviction uh, just move powerfully in their hearts. And may they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. We pray that you would give us a blessing just for our being here this morning for putting ourselves under the sound of your word, not under the sound of the world. Conferences or meetings or institutions or activities or things of that nature that are gathering today are not directing our hearts to you, but in this moment, your word does just that. So please bless these dear friends just for being here. There's a blessing for reading your word, there's a blessing for hearing your word, and then there is a blessing for obeying your word, and may we enjoy all three of those today in Jesus' name, amen. I find myself in the position this morning of just happily sharing some great truths, and I feel a lot uh, like I'm following in the tradition of the prophets and, and apostles in, just in this manner that they too gave warnings on a regular basis to their listeners. And, and most of the time, or much of the time, even as we heard in Sunday school, those warnings go unheeded. Whether it be uh, Noah and Lot, even as we read about and we'll be talking about in a minute, uh, or, or, or Moses or Isaiah, 
down to the apostles and to Paul, they are frequently giving warnings to their listeners. Uh, this is an important matter. And they're often ignored just like that beep on the radio. This was just a test of the emergency broadcast system. And, and those things go away. This week on our vacation, we're playing disc golf and Britta threw a Frisbee at a truck. She didn't mean to, but it hit a truck. And you know how the car alarms it used to happen at Moody all the time. Everybody had the car alarm. And you'd hear this, burp, burp, eh, eh, eh. you know what I'm talking about? No one pays attention to those things. The warnings are just like, well, we hear them all the time. And, and for the warning that is given to us in Luke 17, and the warnings that the prophets and, and, and apostles gave throughout history, and pastors throughout history have given, and pastors throughout our land today are giving, often go unheeded. And warnings go unheeded to our own spiritual detriment. So I pray that you'll be listening today carefully about what Jesus says about his coming kingdom. Last week we talked about the kingdom of God being twofold. That it is a present spiritual reality that his followers enjoy because they have received the kingdom of God. You must receive the rule and reign of God to enter into the kingdom of God. Just this week a very high profile Christian pastor, even author, announced that he was deconstructing. This is the new term now for a falling away from the faith. He had been a pastor for almost 20 years and now is saying that he disavows that, saying, uh, quote, uh, everything that I used to define as being a Christian, I am now announcing that I am not a Christian. Folks, these warnings in the Scripture about remaining true to our faith and holding fast to what we believe are not there in vain. We are to continue to believe the things that we believe and hold fast to them, as Colossians 1.23 says, we will enjoy the blessings if we continue in the faith. Well, that could never happen to me. That will never be me. I'll never turn my back on the Lord. These warnings are here for a reason. When we receive the rule and reign of God in our lives, it then privileges us to enter into the future kingdom of God at some point, either upon our death or upon the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. When asked by the Pharisees, just a review from last week, in verse 20, when the kingdom would come, this is probably not, as most of the Pharisees' questions were, a test to trick Jesus. This probably was just a, uh, they were just misguided in their question. That's what most people believe, and I tend to agree. Saying to Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? They expected a present physical kingdom. That was not on the timetable for Christ at this point. He was here inaugurating a spiritual kingdom. If you would like to enter into that kingdom, receive me as Lord and Savior. They did not understand that. And so Jesus announces to them in his answer in verse number 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Or maybe a better way to say that would be, the kingdom of God is not coming with observation. This word is only used here in the New Testament. The Greek word is only used in the New Testament. And here's what it means. It is a term for calculating events by looking at the stars. The assumption being that if we can observe some sort of astronomical phenomenon, that that is going to coincide with a spiritual phenomenon. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hey, there's a comet coming. Maybe this means Jesus is going to return. Hey, to quote some famous song from the 60s, Jupiter has aligned with Mars, and now this means the coming of Christ. Folks, this has been around forever. 
There's some sort of astronomical sign we can observe, and now that is going to relate to the spiritual coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it is not coming in ways that can be observed. There's other possible interpretations for that, but I believe that what Jesus is basically saying is, you cannot figure out the arrival of the kingdom by seeing something beforehand. That's what Jesus is saying. Temporal events cannot predict the arrival of the kingdom. He goes on to say that they will also not be able to say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God in the midst of you. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, when it comes, cannot be observed by looking at things, and it cannot be observed in a certain place. He says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not confined to a religious site or a religious sanctuary. It cannot be hunted for. It is found in the midst of you. What does this mean? Some of you, if you look in your Bible, verse 21, it actually might say or have an asterisk with something looking down. It might say that this is supposed to be translated, the kingdom of God is within you. Okay? There's actually three ways we can, uh, uh, we can say that this phrase might be interpreted. It may be interpreted, the kingdom of God is inside you. It may be interpreted, the kingdom of God is in your grasp. Meaning that the kingdom of God is available to you. It is in your power to obtain the kingdom of God if you would just have repentance. Or it could mean the kingdom of God is actually in your presence. The central figure of the kingdom of God is standing right before them. And there's reasons to believe for me that it could be either one or three. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is in your grasp. I think what he's saying is either it's inside you or in your presence. Actually, the verb that is used there, or the, excuse me, the preposition that is used there actually means to be inside. It's also used in another place in the gospel where Jesus says, you clean the inside of the dish, meaning something is inside of you. So some people believe that it, Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of God is not in a certain place. You can't say, look, here it is. It is within you. But would he really say that to the Pharisees? Is the kingdom of God inside people who have rejected Christ. Also, men are never commanded to have the kingdom enter them. They are commanded to enter the kingdom. I believe it could be either. I tend to lean towards the fact that Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, if you want to know where the kingdom of God is, look no further than me, Jesus Christ. I am the king. But it also is true that when we do receive the kingdom of God, his rule is then within us. So, I think what Jesus is really saying is the present kingdom cannot be seen by looking at outer signs. It is right here in your midst. Remember last week I said the healing of the ten lepers was a sign that was meant to point to something greater than the sign. Signs always point to something greater than itself. The sign that says Chick-fil-A is not as great as the Chick-fil-A. The sign points us to something greater. The healing of the ten lepers is great, but is it as great as Jesus Christ himself and the authority that he portrays by that healing? Of course not. The, the Pharisees wanted more signs. Jesus says, don't look for signs, meaning astronomical signs or other things that are going to happen. Look to, look to me. I am the greatest of all the signs. I am the true sign because I am declaring God to you. Either way, whether we believe Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is in you or the kingdom of God is, is in your midst, 
Jesus is correcting the false beliefs or assumptions that the Pharisees had about the kingdom of God, and it allows him to now turn to his disciples, and this is going to be the main discussion that we have today, to turn to his, his disciples and explain to them what exactly the kingdom of God is, when it will come, and what it will look like. Okay? So if you're, if you're imagining the scenario, and I wish I had gone with Max to Israel because you could almost imagine the place where Jesus says this, the Pharisees come to him and they're misguided, at the, very, at the very best, they're misguided about their question, when will the kingdom come? Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong place. Look to me, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he turns to his disciples and uses this as a teaching opportunity. Okay? And that begins in verse number 23. See the shift? He said to his disciples. Jesus is basically going to say that right now, you cannot see the kingdom of God, but there is coming a day when it will be unmistakably clear. That's what he goes on to say. And he explains what that is. And remember we said the kingdom of God is present. Everybody in here who has trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, you have entered the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, he rules and reigns over you, but, there, but, but that's not as good as the one day when with all the blood-bought throng from sin and sorrow free... Right? That's why we sang those songs today. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. It will be my joy through the age. I mean, this is good to have Christ as our ruler now, but how much better then, right? I mean, praise God. Praise God. We'll look around at each other, I hope, see one another there, and thank the Lord for his goodness. So, this is a section talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verses 22 to 37. And it's a wonderful passage filled with information but also warning. Okay? Starting in verse number 22. Again, Jesus is saying, the days are coming when you will see. But he's, he begins by saying, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. There will be a desire that will come on the part of which people? Who's he talking to now? Right? He shifts from the Pharisees to the disciples, and he says, when you, you can almost in your Bible write an arrow from the you to the disciples, the disciples are ones who have the desire to see the coming of the Son of Man. You know who doesn't have that desire? People who are not disciples. Doesn't that make sense? People who do not love Christ, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they could care less about the coming of the Son of Man, but those of us who are disciples have a desire to see his day. Do you? And this is, the, this is the point. Do you have that desire, that longing, that passion to see Jesus come and consummate his kingdom? The days are coming. There will be a future reality. Remember in Acts 1, when the disciples are standing there and Jesus ascends into heaven. And they stand there for a while. They might still be standing there had the angels not come back and said, why are you still gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus will come again as you have seen him go. In the meantime, go out and do what our Sunday school lesson shared. Promulgate, promulgate the gospel. Share it with everyone. Be his witnesses, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. As time goes on, the desire for Christ's return on the part of followers of Christ will only increase. 
When it says the Son of Man, this is a callback to Daniel chapter 7 when the Ancient of Days presents the Son of Man who is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ with an everlasting kingdom. What Jesus is doing here in a sense is warning us not to be impatient when the kingdom doesn't come as soon as we would like it to. What would be your timetable for the coming of the kingdom? 11, 11 a.m. today? Right? Wouldn't that be our timetable? In Revelation chapter 6.10, it's one of the reasons we sang this song. The saints say, how long? How long will the wait continue to be? The call to worship this morning from Revelation 22. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Does it seem like that to you? It's been 2,000 years. And then the, the Bible actually concludes with these words, even so, come Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 20, which we'll get to soon, verse 9, in a parable that Jesus gives regarding uh, the tenants who are wicked, it says he has been gone a long time. Christ has been gone a long time and the desire, the days are coming when disciples will desire to see his day. Well, why do disciples have this desire? Why does this desire reside within us to see Christ return? Is it simply so we can be reunited with our dead loved ones? Is it simply so our cancer and our troubles and our trials will be over? The desire that Christians rightly have for Christ to return is that He would receive the honor that He is rightly due. That He would finally and fully exalt Himself as King of kings and Lord of lords and put all of His enemies beneath His feet. It is not a desire that we have to now reign with Him and be free from sorrow, although that is, a, that is an obvious side blessing of it. The, the, the weariness of the wickedness that we see. The, the, the ignorance that the world has to our Lord and Savior. Even in the church, where He is not worthy of time and effort and energy on the part of even people who claim to know and love Him. We're not talking about the people that are golfing and so forth today that, that are atheists and deny the name of Christ. We're talking about people who would gladly say, oh, I love Jesus Christ, just don't have the time, effort, or energy for Him. The true desire that we have is for Christ to exalt Himself. Isn't that right? Christ, take Your rightful throne that we may bow at your feet and worship you rightly and all enemies will be put to shame and put away and you will reign forever and ever. Handel got it right, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ be exalted. Amen to that. You will, you will not see it, he says. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of man and you will not see it. Now what does that mean? Does that mean it will never happen? It will not come? Or does it mean specifically that His disciples that He is speaking to right there will not see it? Whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, the fact of the matter is that there is a delay happening. There's a delay, right? There's a, there's a period of time where Christ, you will not see it. There, are going to be, there have been dis generations of disciples that read these same passages, that sang these same songs, that got elderly and just kept praying for the coming of Christ, and they didn't see it. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it is simply on a delay. So here's what he says in regards to that. 
when we as a church are in a season, let's say, of discontentedness because of our weariness of the wickedness of the world and our desire to see Christ exalted, it may be possible that we will be deceived into believing some lie or deception about the return of Christ. And he warns us not to do that. Keep reading. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they, this is deceivers, they will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out and follow them. It may be as, as bad and as wicked as someone actually announcing that they are Jesus Christ. We've had that happen. I don't know that that's specifically what he's talking about. But he is talking about these warnings. I mean, was, was, what was it? Uh, you know, May of 15 or 18, one of those years, I can't remember now. Seems like they just keep uh, reassessing their predictions. All right, Jesus is going to come because the, the Mayan calendar, what was it? I mean, this nonsense, I didn't even read much about it, but, so I can't speak. But, but people are uh, or, uh, really analyzing these old ancient calendars and, and figuring it out to the very moment that Christ will return, right? Y2K maybe was a big thing. You know, these different periods of time where you have these wackos rise up and say, yeah, he's coming at this time. Jesus says, don't do that. He actually gives us two warnings. He says, don't go out and don't follow them. In other words, don't go out, don't be deceived by it, and don't follow them might mean uh, don't start doing that yourself. Don't start trying to analyze times and, well, I see an earthquake. looks like California's going to fall into the sea. That must mean Jesus is going to come. So don't be deceived by those people and don't be a part in deceiving other people. In other words, don't get caught up in the frenzy. If anyone should say or write a book or start a blog or do a video that says anything about Christ returning at this specific time, don't go running after that nonsense. Christians are gullible and often in their desire, their desire to see Christ. This is the connection. You will desire to see it, and so they almost want to eat up the next best thing. I almost feel like I could write a book like 2020, this is the year, and, and make up some nonsensical arguments and probably could make a bunch of money off gullible Christians who would buy into that. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be a date setter. Don't be one who follows date setters. Why should we not do that? The passage tells us why. Days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the sons of man. And just a, a quick thought on days versus day. In some places in our passage, it actually says days, like in verse 22, it says days twice. But if you look down, excuse me, into verse 24 at the very end, it says the Son of Man will be in his day. And then when it talks about Noah and Lot in verses, uh, if you're looking in your Bible, verse 27 and verse 28, you actually have day that Noah interact, and you have the days. There's really no uh, reason to, to get worked up about that except that it may be that the day is the actual event of the coming of Christ and the days are the events that are related to that or surrounding that. I just want to make that comment real quick. But in verse 24, just like we study on Wednesday night, we look for these reason words or result words for. So he says, well, Jesus, why shouldn't we get excited about people 
who maybe mean well and write a book or start a video series about Christ coming back, why should we not follow them? Why should we not get excited about that? Because we want you to return. We want Christ to be exalted. Why shouldn't we follow those people? Because, we could almost say verse 24, because or for, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now I want to point out a phrase to you that is repeated over and over in this section that is kind of the key to unlocking what Jesus is teaching. Look at the end of verse 24, which I just read. So will the Son of Man be in His day. Look at the end of verse 26. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Look at the start of verse 28. Just a little different, but very close. Just as it was in the days of Lot. Look at verse 30. Very beginning. So will it be. On the, sun, on, the, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. At least four different times. You see that? You should even underline in your Bible because that's what Jesus is saying. He's relating these different events, whether it be historical, actual historical events in the case of Noah and Lot, or, uh, or uh, physiological, the lightning, etc. He's saying this is what the Son of Man's coming will be like. Don't you want to know what it will be like? It will be wonderful because Jesus is going to instruct us. Okay? Going back, why should we not follow these wackos that set dates? Because Jesus says, we don't need people to set dates. Everybody's going to know when he comes. Everybody's going to know it. There's two correlations we can make when Jesus says, like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky. That will be like the day that the Son of Man comes. I... Uh, I really get two um, applications from that. What does that mean? So, so when he says, the way lightning flashes, that's like what the Son of, the Man, Son of Man's coming will be. I would say, first of all, and primarily, it's going to be visible. We'll see it. You ever drive in a big storm, and it's 11 at night, 12 at night? Boom! You know, get that crack, and what happens? The, the, whole, the whole landscape lights right up. All over, people see that. It is a visible, obvious thing. Be inescapable. Everyone will notice it. We don't need a guy writing a book saying this data will come. When, when it comes, <laughs> there's not going to be any mistake. When he says to the Pharisees, it's not coming, someday it's going to. You can't see it now. I'm here. Someday it's going to come so unmistakably and inescapably like a bolt of lightning when it fires up the sky. But not only will it be obvious, I think the second application regarding the lightning, besides the fact that we won't miss it, is that who can predict it? You know, you're driving along and say, I think lightning is going to crack right now. Right. You know, you can't predict that. So here's the jokers saying it's going to be, you know, August 27th, 2019, because I analyzed, you know, Columbus landed in this date, and if you take this math and minus, that's what they do. It's like trying to predict a lightning strike. I think both applications are probably true. This is incredible. It will be universal and sudden and unpredictable when he comes. The only timetable he does give regarding setting dates and setting times is that something has to happen before this. And it's already happened, right? The only time indication in our whole section is the word first in verse number 25. Okay, so here he says, lightning's going to flash, light up the sky, the Son of Man will be, that, that's how it will be, sudden, unpredictable, 
visible worldwide. But before that, right, here's the key time phrase. First, something's got to happen. And, and reading your Bibles, you can see what's got to happen. First, the Son of Man has to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The only timetable we're given regarding the second coming is that first, Christ must do two things. Suffer and be rejected. John 1, 11-12 tells us that He came unto His own and His own did what? Received Him not. The passage actually indicates his own, He came to His own things. This is beautiful the way uh, the, the words are used in the Greek. He came unto His own things. These are the things that He made. He came unto His own things. And his own people received him not, rejected him. He was rejected by this generation. Only a handful of people believed his message and followed it. For the most part, they mocked, even even down to his family members, mocked and rejected him. I can remember sitting here last Christmas and announcing to our full house on the Grace Kids Christmas night how Christ loved them and Christ died for them and looking in the back row and seeing a row of people laughing. They felt like they were laughing at me, but really they were laughing and rejecting Christ. There is no shortage of people who have rejected our Lord. And sadly, they do so their own eternal danger. We wish that it were possible for us to to shake people into their senses. We can't. All I can do, as I mentioned, is I'm not putting myself on the level of Isaiah and Elijah. I'm just saying... As they gave that message, that's all we can do. It's overwhelming to me to present this. I'm not selling vacuum cleaners, right? I'm not going door to door selling Boy Scout cookies. I wouldn't. But, you know, the idea is I'm not trying to convince someone through a sales or marketing technique that they should accept Christ. All I can do is 2 Corinthians 4 says, present the gospel my open statement of the truth to their conscience, and if the gospel is veiled to them, it is veiled to them because they are perishing. So all I do is lay it before all of you today and say Christ has suffered and been rejected. Did He just come because He's some masochist that wanted to be rejected? He came to suffer on my behalf and on your behalf, to die on the cross for your sins. I wrote this while sitting looking at a beautiful lake of God's creation and wrote this very thing. I said, what a joy it is for me to read this tonight. To know of God's sovereign will to allow Christ to suffer and be rejected, to go to the cross to die for my sins before He can take His rightful, glorious place. To have this way provided for me and for Jesus' determination to do it. I am thankful to God for this witness in the Scripture and the, uh, that He allowed its truth to resonate in my heart. I hope you could say that too. It's overwhelming to look at this passage, isn't it? To say, to, for, what does Christ deserve? He deserves that rightful position, but what He says is, cross first. Cross first. Suffering before glory. He didn't need to say that. We all should have been immediately incinerated upon our conception because we are nothing but rebels and haters of God. But in His grace, He came and died for our sins. First, He must suffer. Folks, that has happened. He has done it. 2 Peter 3. But Christ died for, 
died with our sins in his body on the tree. The just one for the unjust ones. How people can laugh at that and mock that just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. I can understand them laughing at an infomercial where the guy always says, but wait, there's more. You can ride this boat on the lake because you just put flex steel on the bottom and people all go, ha, 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 what a stupid thing. Yet to do that at the gospel of Jesus Christ only shows the depravity of our own hearts that someone could love us so much to do this and we still say, yeah, but that's stupid or not worth my effort and time. What a beautiful thing. When it says in verse number 25, he must, this is what is known as the divine necessity. It's the Greek word D-E-I, day. It must happen. This was not an option. It was God's will that he should suffer over and over in the Old Testament. And even as the prophets uh, announced and then the apostles interpreted and announced their message in the New Testament, We are always told that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. From the beginning in Genesis 3.15, when it said the serpent would bruise his heel, there's an element of suffering there. To Psalm 22, when his bones would be broken and the Father would forsake him. To Isaiah 52-53, this wonderful servant song of he will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he bore our sins and our sorrows, and by his stripes we are healed. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Beautiful section. It was announced that way. Predicted. Yet the Pharisees are looking for a coming king to take care of their physical problems. Everyone wants a Jesus to make them feel better, to make them successful, to make them rich. When Christ has come to offer something so much greater, which is spiritual health and salvation, nobody wants that. Isn't that absurd? I want this temporal stuff, but I don't want the eternal salvation that Christ has come to offer. The disciples announced this in Luke 2, Matthew 22, and Acts 2, all the way down to 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 1, verse 7. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. And oh, how He did suffer for our sins. The Bible tells us He suffered so much that His visage was changed that He didn't even look like a person. Like the deer that's slaughtered on the road and its parts are left all over. You can't even see what kind of animal it was. That was our Lord for our sins, suffering. I would just urge you, if you could not give testimony for yourself that you are happy in what God has provided for you in Christ, then the important thing for you today is to turn to Him for salvation. Because if you don't, the rest of the passage tells us what is coming for you. Let's go on. What else can we learn here? Verse number 26. What will be the nature of the coming of the Christ and the coming of His kingdom? Two, besides the fact that it will be sudden and universally seen and also come after the suffering that Christ experienced on our behalf. Now Jesus is going to relate it to two Old Testament historical figures that we know very well. All the way back to Genesis, two, two very well-known stories, the story of the flood and the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably the two greatest stories of destruction in the Old Testament. If we thought about judgment in the Old Testament, these are probably the two we think about, the flood and then the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what can we learn here? It seems that there are basically two main points of comparison. Let's go ahead and read it just so we can uh, hear what the Bible says. And again, look for those phrases, as it was or so it will be. So it says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, 
so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, and it will be that way on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now for me, when I'm reading that and thinking, okay, what is the comparison between Noah and Lot? The first thing that jumps to my mind, and maybe not, this isn't right, but the first thing that jumps to my mind is the extreme wickedness of both situations. Okay? Remember in Noah's day, it was said that men only thought about evil all the time, continually. Like this was their constant thought. I mean, do we live in a generation like that today or what? Inventors of evil, Romans tells us. Uh, we invent new ways to be wicked. Same in, same in Lot's day. Remember when Lot and his family escaped? Remember when Abraham was arguing with God, please don't destroy the city? Remember what he said? Hey, if there's 50, will you destroy it? Remember that story? He goes all the way down to 10. If there are 10 people, like there weren't even 10 people in that city that were holy. So extremely wicked. But that's not the primary point that Jesus is bringing out. Okay, that's true, but it's not the primary point that he's bringing out. Look at what is happening. Look what he says. He doesn't say, he says in Noah's day they were eating, drinking, and marrying. Anything wrong with those things? Of course not. If there were, a lot of us would be in trouble. We eat, drink, and many of us have been married. Look at what Lot. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Anything wrong with those things? No. So it, apparently, Jesus is not primarily focusing on the wickedness and the sinfulness of those generations. He is focusing on the busyness of life's activities and being indifferent and unprepared for the coming judgment. That's the focus. And here's how we know that. All of the terms, I wrote them real small, eating twice, drinking twice, marrying twice, as far as the words being used, I mean, buying, selling, planting, building. So we have two, four, six, ten verbs there. Eating, eating, eating drinking, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, buying, selling, planting, building. All of those terms, don't, don't get confused by the technical nature of it, I'll explain it, are in an imperfect tense in the original. We don't really have that in English. Imperfect tense just means ongoing. It, it's like a, a chronic giving themselves over as if these things would last forever. Imperfect, like there's no end to these things. Life is just kind of going to keep continuing and we're going to involve ourselves with the activities of life. Eating, drinking. I mean, we might update it in a sense for our generation. Working right? Uh, just whatever, whatever verbs that we're involved in, we just kind of go on with life and we could include all of these other things, business and family, etc. All of those things they were doing as repetitively giving themselves over life, celebration, etc. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter announces that scoffers believe that all things continue as they have. These normal activities caught everybody but surprise. Caught everybody by surprise, except in Noah's day, eight people, and in Lot's day, three people. We are warned by Jesus to avoid these responses. 
to not be indifferent and inattentive to the things of Christ. Both Noah and Lot were called righteous people in the Old Testament, Lot in the New Testament, but Noah in 6 9 is called a righteous person. And they were saved, they were delivered before the coming judgment. And both of them, I know it specifically says Lot, but I'm, I'm not sure if it specifically says Noah. I didn't look to Genesis to read that. I uh, should have. But I'm sure that in the hundred years that Noah was giving, giving the, hey, come on, the judgment's coming. But it specifically says when Lot tried to warn his own sons-in-law that they laughed him to scorn. He said, Lot, you're an idiot. This is dumb. And they laughed at the coming judgment. Same as the response of many today, which is why I said at the beginning, the warnings are here for a reason. We are to be vigilant and take the kingdom seriously. And instead of being, while we're living in the age of indulgence and indifference, let us turn our eyes to heaven and live our lives that way with the impending return of Christ. Not only were they living in self-indulgence, but also moral indifference, as I mentioned, doing all the wickedness they could do, even though that's not primarily what Christ is pointing out. They are judged. Why? They are judged because of their rejection to receive the kingdom. We looked at this last week in Mark 10. They refused to receive the kingdom of God, so they could not enter the kingdom of God. In Noah's case, we can look at it in the passage, verse 27, the flood came and destroyed them all. In Lot's case, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 29, Fire and sulfur rained down and destroyed them all. You see the key repeated phrase? Destroyed them all. Destroyed them all. So will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Righteous will be what? Delivered. Those who rejected will be destroyed. This isn't a joke. This isn't a theory. This is the truth of the Word of God that those who reject the loving advances of Christ are destined to the same kind of punishment as the drowners in the days of Noah and as the people who were burned in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, to, to, to mock this or to be indifferent about it is nothing but complete moronic behavior. <laughs> we face a decision now that will greatly affect us then. The words, I mentioned the verbs eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling are in imperfect tense. The other words, other verbs, entered, came, destroyed, went out, reigned, and destroyed, those are all in a different tense of a permanent nature. These things are going to happen and the results are going to be ongoing. Let us be ready then. Let us be constantly thinking about His return. The key is not to be indifferent, but to be prepared don't be caught unaware. You don't have any excuse. You don't have any excuse. No one does. I'm explaining it as clearly as I can. What is coming? It's your choice now. In verse 30, it tells us that Christ will be revealed. Judgment not only will be revealed, but Christ Himself will come. It is the promise He made in John 14. It is the promise that the Scriptures make that will be fulfilled, that He is returning. And when He does, you know what He brings? Not grace, destruction. Not forgiveness, judgment. He offers forgiveness when? Now. Today is the day of salvation. You want it, you better take it now, because when it comes, you're not getting it. This is your chance and time today to receive that forgiveness. The response on that day then will be that of preparedness. 
of readiness. Instead of indifference to Christ and His return, the things we should be indifferent to are the things we're so captivated by. The binge-watching of television programs. The constant entertainments and amusements that we need. The addictions that we have to certain activities and events. This nonsense everywhere you go. I mean, the, the constant desire to please myself. Folks, we use these things. We watch TV. We enjoy nice restaurants. And at the same time, we're saying, none of this matters. What's coming is important. Right? Now look, continuing on here for just a second. No one lot, I think that's clear what's going on. The righteous are delivered. And then those who have rejected Christ are judged everlastingly. <laughs> if you look at verse 31 then, on that day, when this happens, and it will happen, on that day, we have a couple of examples here. If you're on the housetop, don't go back down to get your goods. And if you're in the field, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. There's three examples given to us. And the warning is not about escaping. We have a person on the house. We have a person in the field. And a person uh, known as Lot's wife to us. When judgment comes, it will be revealed what we really love. House in those days was a flat top roof. This isn't a guy shingling a house like we know. He's sitting up, maybe relaxing on his house. When that day comes, when we see these things happening, when the lightning strikes, not that lightning necessarily will strike, but it will be sudden and visible. We'll all know it. We'll all see it. Those who are here and remain. Don't go back down in the house. Like, what's being proven here is what is important to you. Think about it. The guy in the house, when Christ comes, oh no, I better, I better go down and gather my goods. Or the guy out in the field recognizes Christ has come. Oh no, I better go back to the house and collect all I have. And Lot's wife, who is this close to being delivered, is more concerned about what's happening to her stuff. And she looks back and is judged, turns into a pillar of salt. So I don't think the warning Christ is making is about escaping. It's about clinging to the things of the world. And I can say that because he makes the application next when he says, if you want to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. And if you want to save your life and keep it, you've got to lose your life. When the judgment of God comes, what do we really love? What is precious to us? Our stuff in the house? Leave it behind. Forget it. Even Lot's wife, who's so close to salvation, yet long for the world. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle in his book on Luke, Thoughts on Luke. See if you are this person or if you know a person like this. There are many who go to certain lengths in religion. They conform themselves to the outer ways of their Christian relatives and friends and even speak the language. But all this time, their souls are not right in the sight of God. Here's a great phrase. The world is in their hearts and their hearts are in the world. The things that they see, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life, those captivate them, not the coming glorious Christ. You know what captivates us as believers? The return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ coming to exalt Himself. 
It is too late to prepare in that day. You remember the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress when Christian has the burden on his back and is warning the people of the coming judgment. He says, we live in the city of destruction. And they laughed at him and his family thought he was nuts. They tried to put him away and appease him. And everybody rejected it. Christian went on to the celestial city and enjoyed the presence of God. And it's a life principle that we all must understand if we want to preserve this life, we lose the next. But if we lose this life, we gain the next. It's a no-brainer. Does it sound like a bad trade-off to you? Wait a minute. I lose my Xbox. I lose my nice boat. But I get eternal riches and salvation? Give me the Xbox and boat? Renounce this life. Renounce yourself. Renounce family members that hold to this life. Not in the sense, we're just saying, like the division that comes when families won't believe. We're going to see that right here in just a minute. In fact, let's conclude with this. You've listened so well, I need to finish. Here's what Jesus says finally in that night. Actually, it's, it's seen as a worldwide event when Christ returns because in some places people are sleeping and in some people, places people are grinding. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one taking the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one taking the other left. Depending on what translation of the Bible you have, it may go from verse 35 to 37. And there's no verse 36 there. Some of you may have verse 36 there. Some of you may have brackets around verse 36. Because in verse 36 it says there will be two in the field. Because that's what it says in Matthew. And what probably happened here is a very zealous scribe remembered what it said in Matthew and included it here when it really shouldn't be here. Either way, the difference is, is none. It still says it in Matthew, but the point is here, we have people sleeping, one taken, one left. We have people grinding, one taken, one left. Taken where? Left where? Matthew 24, verse 37 helps us to understand that. When it says they are taken away in judgment, and those who are left escape judgment. They will enter the kingdom. This is not talking about the rapture, uh, which we kind of jumped over here a little bit today because that's not the point of our lesson from this passage. But this is, the, this, is the, this is the point when Christ comes and the people that he takes, right? Who did he take? He took Noah. He, he sa saved them. And then the others were destroyed. The ones who are taken here are taken for judgment. Just like it says, the, the rain came and destroyed them. The fire came and destroyed them. And here it is, the ones who are taken are the ones who are being destroyed. The ones who are left escape judgment. Last phrase, and I want to read one passage in Matthew that Derek read for us earlier. Finally, they get to all the end of this, and the disciples say, where's all this going to happen, Lord? That's a weird question to ask. You hear all this destruction and, and prophecy from Christ about his coming. They say, where will this happen? And Jesus makes this very cryptic, cryptic statement. says where the corpse is, really should say where the body is. There the vultures will gather. When the disciples say, where will it happen? This could mean a couple of things. What basically is Jesus saying is, when you see extreme and total death, <laughs> that's when you'll know the judgment has come. 
Because for the unprepared, the day of the sun will be a day of judgment and death and permanence and finality. You don't need to worry about where. Turn with me to Matthew 24. One, one passage and then I'll be done. Thank you for being patient. I think this is important. I'm almost done. I had Derek read the parallel passage in Matthew 24 for our scripture reading this morning, but we did not read the very end. I'm saving that for right now. Listen from verse 36, or you're there and can follow along. We'll make one application. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now here's very, very similar to what we just read, almost the same. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were, here it is, unaware. That's what I was talking about in the other passage. Indifferent, unprepared. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. That's, that's what probably was written in in verse 36 in our Luke passage. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken, another. Now here's the application, everybody. Here's the application. This isn't included in Luke, but here it is. Stay awake. <laughs> be ready. Watch out. Because you don't know when the Lord's coming. But you know this, if the master had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. If you knew destruction and judgment was coming to your house, that burglars were planning to come to your house this night, wouldn't you be ready? 100% you'd be ready. You'd have the dogs ready, the guns loaded. Burglars wouldn't stand a chance. Because we don't know when Christ could come, let us be ready and prepared. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me just say this. He's coming. He's coming. And I can guarantee you this. You want to be on His side when He comes. You can laugh now. You can mock this now. But there will be no escape for those who have left Jesus in this life. And the next will be nothing but eternal punishment and peril. My heart and my desire would be that you would respond to the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, I'm so sorry for not presenting this in a more urgent fashion. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work I can't do and just speak to the hearts of the people here. Help us to be prepared and ready for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your song sheet. Or